Luke 24. All of us have probably experienced uh, the, the phenomena where you, you get a new thing, a new car, uh, a, new, um, a new instrument, a new gadget, a new cell phone, a new computer, something, and uh, you're just really excited about that new thing for about 15 minutes um, or two days or two months. Maybe it's a new house. And it's not even exciting when you first get it. <laughs> or maybe it's exciting when you first get it and then it loses its excitement for a while because it's a lot of work. I know some of you are living this reality. Um, and, uh, and there comes a moment where it just becomes kind of humdrum and commonplace. Uh, I, I think that would even be true if someone, I, I wonder what it would be like to be someone that's living on the streets. You just have a cardboard box you call home or an overpass somewhere or maybe a tent and you you live there even during the cold of winter, the rain of spring, the heat of summer and uh, fortunes change in your life, something dramatically changes and you end up with a home, a home of your own. Uh, and in the beginning, it's so full of excitement and and beauty and, and uh, joy that you just, you can't imagine. It just... It's, it just blows your mind. Um, but because we're human and because we've been affected by the fall, nothing is like that forever, is it? There comes a moment where it just becomes just commonplace. And there even comes that moment where not only is it commonplace, but we begin to complain about, about that thing that we were so excited about. Like um, the house is a lot of work. The cell phone gets slow. The screen cracks. Um, just whatever that... Thing is in your life that seemed like it was the new thing, the new shiny, uh, isn't the new shiny anymore, and you've got to chase after something else to, to fill that place in your life. And I'm afraid that for some people, the resurrection and the reality of what happened 2,000 years ago <coughs> becomes just one more new shiny to be inspected, maybe looked at, maybe, maybe barely even glanced at, and then put away on a shelf and forgotten about. But this morning, my prayer is that God will help us to look at the, the resurrection with new eyes and to maybe, maybe even see what it is all about for the very first time. Maybe you'll recognize something new in it. And what my prayer is that in seeing the resurrection in a new way, in a fresh way, and the light of the resurrection shining back onto your life in the here and now, that that light brings hope to the present, the world that you live in right now, um, takes on new meaning and, and, and new significance because of what Jesus did. We're, we're going to be reading in chapter 24 of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24 in the first verses of Luke. And I'm not going to ask you to stand. We'll be reading the first 12 verses. And so I'll be reading the first 12 verses. So I'm not going to ask you to stand for that. But this is what it says, Luke chapter 24 in verse 1. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the sepulcher, and this is the women, um, Mary and, and, uh, and others. They came bringing spices that they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, and as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, 
Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulchre, and told all these things unto the eleven, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the disciples, unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wandering in himself at that which was come to pass. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it's not just uh, words on a page, it's not just idle tales and stories from the past, but a living reality shining down through history on us today. And I pray that you would help us to feel that reality, to, to recognize it, to know what this means for us and, and what we should do about it. And we'll thank you in your name. Amen. So this week, as I prepared to minister to you all, to, to speak to you, to give you a message from God's word on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, it's given me time to think about why, why the effects and the reality of resurrection have kind of grown old for so many people in our culture, That what, what that really means to us. And I'm afraid that we can look at different areas of our lives and we can see what effect and impact that loss of the reality of resurrection is going to have. Um, we recognize it in the fact that probably most of you know that uh, as, as believers, maybe some of you, you're not, um, not only are you not regularly here, I'm so glad for those of you that are visitors, this isn't somewhere that you're here very often, but maybe not only are you a visitor, but in your heart, you're not, you're not really there. You're not, a, you're not a believer in Jesus, and you wouldn't try to tell me that Jesus makes a big difference in your life. And maybe one of the reasons why you would say you're not really a big Jesus person is because when you look around at people that say they're all about Jesus, you don't really see any definable difference in their life from the way most people's lives are. So when you look at the things that are problems in our world today, when you look at things like materialism and uh, the way we can care so much about the stuff that we have, that it's really clear that our heart gets wrapped up in those things, in that, in that stuff, until it's, it's the way we define ourselves. Uh, and you say, you know, Brother Martin, I look at people to church, I look at people that don't go to church, and there's really not that much difference. Or if you would look and say, uh, look at uh, their morals, the way that they live every day, uh, whether they're honest people and truthful people, and whether they uh, are people of, of love and compassion and concern for others. And you would say, Brother Martin, I look at people at church, I look at people in the world, and it really doesn't seem like there's that much difference. Um, maybe you have another item on the list that's in your mind that you would be saying to yourself, well, he hasn't mentioned that, but it fits there too. There's not really that much difference. And at the end of the day, what it, what it means for you is I don't see why church matters that much. 
In fact, one of the specific areas that you would see that, that you could probably say, it doesn't seem like there's that much difference between the way church people are and the way people that don't go to church are, is about the way people look at death. Even with the word, you can feel kind of a pall fall over us because that's not something that we like to talk about. We're in a culture that doesn't like to think about it, doesn't like to talk about it. Um, and uh, when it comes to, to all the things that, that attend death, whether that's um, palliative care, you know, the, the kind of nursing and, and doctoring and, and hospital care that, that goes along with terminal illnesses, that's not something we like to think about. Uh, or whether we're talking about funerals, we think of that as morbid and dark and difficult. And uh, I've been to funerals where, where I've heard the, the keening and the sobbing of people, that it was pretty clear that this was a dark moment for them. And someone could argue that it doesn't look like there's that much difference between the way people in church look at death and the way everybody else does. But the resurrection is supposed to make a difference. And so if it's not making a difference, then what I would challenge you to say is that, that, that what we need to express, and, and really in some ways maybe if, if, you're not a, if you're not a believer in Jesus, in some ways maybe you're just going to sit back and watch as those of us who are followers of Christ, I hope that by the end of the message this morning we have a little bit of a, of a grasp on why the resurrection matters and what difference the reality of resurrection makes in our life every day. In the story that we just read this morning, um, and it is a story, the story of Jesus, a man who comes and lives this perfect life uh, throughout his entire life. He, he's the kind of person that could say things that if you or I said them would sound extremely arrogant, like, which one of you thinks that I've ever committed sin? That'd be the kind of thing that would kind of make people raise their eyebrows, wouldn't it? And it'd be the kind of thing that if one of us here said it, there'd be immediate people to correct them. If I said it this morning, my wife would have to stand to her feet and say, um, do you need me to take the pulpit? Because I could tell them about some things that, that, uh, that you're not too proud of and you've had to apologize for. But Jesus, sometimes we think about it like, well, I don't, I don't commit sin as in I don't ever do things. I don't knowingly, intentionally do wicked things. But I, all of us have to apologize regularly. But Jesus never, ever, ever had to apologize, not even the smallest, tiniest sin. And God's standard of holiness, which is perfect, absolute holiness, Jesus perfectly fulfilled it. <coughs> and uh, because of this, and because of Jesus, things that Jesus said about himself, when he referred to himself as the Son of God, and he referred to himself as I am, and, and, uh, and, and allowed worship to be given to him, he can perform miracles and, and erased the curse of sin in the lives of people around him. He forgave sins of people. And last week we talked about how that had brought a moment where political aspirations were at a fevered pitch and people had decided this man is the Messiah. And what that means is that he's getting ready to deliver us from all our fears. And their fears were the Roman occupation, the taxes that they had to pay, um, and uh, the oppression that they lived under. But that's not what Jesus did. And three, three days ago, 
on two days ago on Friday, Friday evening, this man that they had placed all their hopes, all their dreams, all their aspirations in was nailed to a cross. And I, I just, I want us to grasp the reality that something happened that was more gruesome and more barbaric and more devastating than anything that any one of us here has ever seen in person. It was the kind of thing that would turn your stomach, that would you would immediately cover up the TV, that wouldn't be played on primetime TV, that, that wouldn't be played on the news. It would be censored out because it's such a gruesome, devastating sight as, as nails, heavy spikes are driven through the wrists of the Son of God. The perfect man is laid on a cross. Already his body is shredded to ribbons of flesh by the flogging that he re- he's received. And this, this perfect man who's completely innocent, is being mutilated and being subjected to the most inhumane form of execution that the Romans could have invented by this point in history. He's going to be hung on a cross. And as he hangs on a cross, I I just want you to grasp the reality. See, this wasn't something that was unique for the disciples to witness. They had seen this happen before. At one point in Roman history, and my history is not... Uh, brushed up well enough to be able to tell you with certainty whether this is before or after, but I believe it was sometime before. At one point, they crucified 2,000 people on the road into Jerusalem. The road was lined with individual after individual. These were, these were enemies of the Roman Empire, and Rome wanted the world to know what it happened. What happened when people crossed the power of Rome? So the disciples were used to that kind of gruesome death. Unlike you and I that are so insulated from the reality of death, they weren't insulated at all. They knew what this scene looked like. It was devastating because of their personal connection to Jesus, and it was devastating because they recognized in him his complete innocence from all wrongdoing. But the reality of a gruesome and terrible death was not new to them at all. They were very used to this. So for them, it wasn't a surprise to see the flies gather around the body of Jesus. It wasn't shocking to watch the pool of blood as it grew on the ground. It wasn't surprising, except that they never expected this. This wasn't what was supposed to happen. Jesus wasn't supposed to die. He wasn't supposed to to gasp for his breath in just that way. They'd already seen his agony, the anxiety that I talked to you about last week that had gripped his soul. They had seen that. But it all just felt so wrong. And for us, it's very easy to build so much distance between us and Jesus and his death and what that really looked like. That it's hard for us to fully imagine how, how heavy that body was when they took him down off the cross. How cold and lifeless it was. How broken it was. That was their hopes. That was everything that they had poured their lives into. I want you to understand this morning that they had given everything for Jesus. Peter said that once to Christ. He said, Lord, we have left all to follow you. They had left everything. And now it meant nothing. And now 
His arms are heavy with death. They clean him as best they can. And it's a strange story about the one that brings him down off the cross. I've spoken to you all about it before, but it bears repeating this man, Joseph of Arimathea. He isn't like the disciples, Peter, James, John, these men. He's different, and here's why. Because the scripture tells us that he was a disciple, but no one knew it. He was a secret disciple. He was was afraid. Maybe he was like some of you are. Probably he was more like all of us than the disciples truly were because none of us have had to give up everything for Jesus. Some of you have had to give up more. Some of you have given up less. Some of you, if you were really honest, you've given up almost nothing at all. But Joseph of, Aram, Joseph of Arimathea, he had, he had not wanted to make that kind of statement. Well, there's a reason why. He was a powerful man a man of influence. He was, he was a member of something called the Sanhedrin. It would be a little bit like being part of the Supreme Court now. And uh, that meant power and influence and authority. And as, as he watched God die, as he watched Jesus breathe his last, something within him, I, I don't know why this is, but I, I can only conjecture that maybe in that moment he realized how empty and meaningless everything that he'd been giving his life to, all the reasons why he had held back from really giving everything to Jesus. And because of that, he goes, and he goes from being a secret disciple. At Jesus' death, he becomes an open disciple to this dead man. He goes to, to Pilate and, and says, you know, can I, can I take down the body of Jesus? If you want to see that in the story, it's, it's uh, just a few verses before what we read this morning. It's chapter 23, verses 50 and through the end of the chapter. He brings down Jesus' body and begins to wrap this this dead man, this this mutilated piece of flesh, wraps it in about 70 pounds of ointment and spices, um, very sweet-smelling, sticky uh, mixture that is there to help them as they wrap the body in a grave cloth. And then he takes Jesus and he lays Jesus in his own tomb that he's cut out for himself. Instead, he lays Jesus in him in that tomb. And and inside that tomb lays all of Joseph's hopes and dreams and visions. The future that he thought was coming is gone. It's dead. But early on this Sunday morning, they come to the tomb where they had last seen the mutilated figure of the one they had placed all their hopes in. They, they come back to this tomb. And when they come, something drastic has changed. The stone is rolled away. There's, he's gone. And they don't know where he's gone to. And uh, you saw probably many of you noted in your mind as you read it, some things never change. When the women come to the men to tell them, the men don't believe them. They say that it seems like aimless prattle or or idle tales or silly rumors, but they know that surely these women aren't, they're, they're confused. There's no way that Jesus is actually gone. They're perplexed and confused by what isn't there, and then they're shocked and amazed by what is there when they find these 
these angels standing, flaming messengers of God are, are there to proclaim to them, why are you looking for him here? He's not dead. But remember, in their minds is still the image of, of the flayed and fragile body of God. And it, they simply can't wrap their minds around the change that happened. Peter, when he runs to the tomb, isn't content just to stand outside and look on, but he, he looks in. And he sees that Jesus is gone, but he's left something behind. As near as we can understand that Jesus hadn't needed his grave clothes anymore, so he simply passed through them and they had collapsed in upon themselves. But the way that they would bury a body is they would wrap the body from the shoulders down. They would wrap the entire body and then, then they would take a headcloth and they would wrap the head carefully, separately from the rest of the body. And Jesus had had taken off that cloth and he had laid it by itself. And Peter wasn't sure what it meant, but he knew what it didn't mean. It, it meant that no one had come and taken the body. No one had stole, No one would do that. He can't understand what's happened, but he understands that something has happened. And as the story continues to unfold later, the verses after what I read this morning, they tell the story of, two disciples that are walking to Emmaus, a town just a few miles from Jerusalem. And, and the, the sorrow and the sadness that is gripping their life is more profound and more deep than anything that any of us here have experienced. As I already said, these are people that have poured out everything for Jesus, and now Jesus has failed them. He's gone. He's not there. And a stranger comes to walk along beside them as they are talking between themselves. And they're, they're, there's a, a, um, a sadness that grips them that's obvious to everyone around them. I don't know if you've been that person. I've been that person before where I was depressed and everybody could tell. I remember working at a, a job where part of my job was taking the, the guy that I was taking care of down to meals and being so sad, so depressed, so... Uh, so broken up that I didn't want to eat. And I remember how upset he got with me that I didn't eat. He could tell. Everyone around me could tell. Martin's not having a good day. And these two disciples are not having a good day. But as the stranger walks along with them, he asks them a question. He says, why, why are you so sad? What's, what's going on? And they said, are you, are you a stranger here in Jerusalem that you don't, you don't know what's happened? As, as one person pointed out, this stranger that they're addressing is the only person that actually knew what had happened. And that's when Jesus turns to them. They don't know it's Jesus. And he begins to talk to them. And what he does is he points them back to his word, to the word of God. Don't you wish you could have been there to hear him talking to them and say to them, oh, fools, and slow of heart to believe. It's the idea of thick-headedness, but not just thick-headedness, but thick-heartedness. Like, why, why weren't you able to receive the truth that I wanted to give you? Like, didn't you know that... Not just that I was going to be resurrected, but that I had to die. Like, that was part of the story. And then he began to open for them the scripture and demonstrate to them how the Son of God, the Messiah, must die. He must be delivered in the hands of sinful men. But he took them to Moses and the prophets, and he read them the word of God in the light of who he was. And, and then he, he said, well, I'm going to keep walking as they stop to, to lodge for the night. They stop to, to have a meal and sleep at that home for the night. And, 
And he, he acted like he was going to keep walking down the road. They said, can you stay with us? They were enjoying his sermon so much that they wanted it to go on. That's a really good sermon when you're not ready to listen, to, not ready for the end of it. And so Jesus stopped. They still don't know it's Jesus. And they go in and, and sit down to eat, and Jesus takes the bread and breaks the bread. And in that moment, there's something about the way he breaks the bread. There's something about the familiarity of the moment. There's something where the scripture tells us that they saw who he was. And I, I believe what the scripture is actually telling us is not, I, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit. And the scripture never tells us that the reason why they weren't able to recognize him is that he looked different than he did before. It's that there were, as if there were spiritual blinders on their eyes where they couldn't see who he was. They, they were spiritually blind to the reality of his identity. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit removes the blinders and they see Jesus for who he really is. And in that moment, they, their hearts, are, they, they actually, Jesus disappears and they turn to one another. They say, we should have known. Did you feel that feeling inside? Our hearts were burning inside of us as he walked with us and talked with us on the way. This is the story of Jesus. And, and the question is how, what happened so long ago when a very, very dead man became very, very alive? What does that mean to us today? I thought about how in this story, it's interesting to me that in the way Luke tells the story, he never describes Jesus by the tomb at all. He specifically puts him in a situation where the physicality, the the mundaneness of who he is, is so uh, camouflaged that not only do the disciples not recognize that it's Jesus on the Emmaus Road, they don't even recognize that there's anything unusual about him at all. He's simply one more person walking down that road. In other words, the broken body, the destroyed back, the shredded flesh, the frame of Christ has been radically transformed by being resurrected, not just resuscitated, not just being brought back to life, but being radically changed into a glorious new creation body. God has reshaped and remade. He's, he's, he is, he's, the way Paul puts it is he says that this, this corruptible body is going to put on incorruption. This, this mortal body is going to be put up, put on immortality and death will be swallowed up in victory. And what, what does that mean for us today? Well, I think if we're going to even begin to get a grip of, of what it means for us today, we have to go back to what it meant for them. As I already said to you, we're we're so isolated and insulated from the realities of life and death, suffering and pain, that these things become distant, hazy illusions in, that we really can't get a grip of. And until we go back, we can't move forward. Until we look back at what it meant, we can't look forward to see what it means. And what would change in some small way at least, this reality is if you and I had come to church this morning and like so many churches a hundred years ago, we had walked past a graveyard that contained the, the remains of our dearly departed loved ones. If, if you'd walked by and you'd been able to look over at the tombstone of grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, great-grandma, great-grandpa, and you would have seen in that a reminder, a visual reminder of your own fate, of where you're headed. Because see, if we're going to look at this story, we have to recognize that every single one of us are headed 
for the reality, the, the moment of death. It's not a surprise. We treat it as if it is, but it's the most predictable thing in the world. We know that all of us are going to face it someday. It was something that these disciples had seen again and again, as I've mentioned to you. And somehow Jesus changed that, but he changed it not by avoiding it, but by going through it. Do you think about that for me? Just for a moment. Jesus changed the reality of death, not by avoiding it completely. He conquered it by going through it. He experienced death. And I believe that that may be, that might even be the core of the reason why we don't recognize the reality of the beauty of what Jesus did. Because Paul says it like this. He says, we are captive to the terror of death all our lives. The thing that we fear so deeply, that's not actually what Jesus feared. And when I spoke to you about it last week, about his anxiety, his anxiety was not at the fact of death. It was at the reality of bearing our sins. Jesus could look death in the face with no fear. And when Pilate tried to threaten him, he said, don't you know that I could take away your life? Jesus said, no, you can't. I I lay my life down. You see, you can't take away my life because I'm giving my life. You can't take from me. You can't steal from me what I'm giving as a gift. And because Jesus embraced this death, he experienced this glorious resurrection. And then he brought it to you and I as a gift. But it comes to us as a gift experienced only through death. Do you remember what I told you that Jesus in himself, he represented, he personified, like he was the picture of all the hopes and dreams that the disciples had. And he died. You see that? Do you understand? Are you following me? That Jesus represented the future that they had pictured in their mind, what they wanted life to look like. And he died. He died a terrible death. And for you and I, if we're ever going to experience the reality of resurrection as something beautiful, we're going to have to die too. Now, when I say that, I don't mean just die in the sense of experience physical death. But for many people, even the reality of a coming physical death will never bring them to a moment where they will lay down their life, where they'll let go of the things that they hold on to so tightly. The life that you're wanting to live right now. Because for you and I, our first birth, being being born as a human, means being born as a sinner, as someone alienated from God. And our hopes and dreams, our aspirations and our visions for the future are wrapped up in who we are and what we want to accomplish, what we want to be. We have painted a picture of the future we want. And it includes comfort and happiness and prosperity and, and fun things to play with and toys and fun vacations. And that's the life that we long to live. And we're willing to make some sacrifices as long as they're not too significant in order to experience that life. But what Jesus is calling us to is a death to our own desires, a death to our own comforts, a death to all we call life, 
so that we can experience a resurrection. There's a story where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he makes this kind of odd statement. They're talking about rules and laws and basically their own rules, their made-up rules, their own made-up laws and their traditions and the kind of life that they're living. And Jesus says to him, says to them, he says, no one, no one uh, takes an old wineskin and puts new wine in it. Because if he does, it'll burst the wineskin and the wines will be spoiled. But he takes and he puts new wine into a new wineskin. And then both are preserved. And the point that Jesus is making is in that day, the wineskins would be a, they would be a um, leather or maybe the organ of an animal that's been cleaned and rinsed out. And, and this would be filled with wine and, and then it would be stopped up. But as the wine is fermented in that, in that skin, the skin is going to stretch and you can only do that once. And if you do that again, if you try to empty it like we would a two liter bottle of pop and then fill it back up, it's already stretched as much as it can stretch. And if you pour something new into something old, it's going to destroy it. And what Jesus was telling them in these vague hints was the reality of resurrection that here's what I want you to get very clearly. You cannot experience the beauty of resurrection in your life today without letting go of what you see as so important and so central to your life. Some of you Know what it's like to constantly, you want to serve God, but you also want to have your own kind of life. Like you want to have both. You see what I'm saying? And maybe you even feel like that, maybe, not just feel like, maybe the reality is in your own life, you have given your life to God as much as you know how. You, you've given God your sin and you've said, Lord, please save me. And you try to live every day, but then you wonder why doesn't my life look like resurrection? Like, why don't I have this new kind of life? And what I, what I want you to understand so clearly is that, that the resurrection that Jesus is talking about, it's only going to be as full and complete as the death that we died. Some of you, your life looks like kind of uh, trying to half die and then have a glorious resurrection. That would be just as unpress, unimpressive as if they would have brought Jesus down from the cross still very much alive and laid him in the tomb for a couple of days and then tried to get excited about him when he came back to, from the tomb. Wouldn't have worked, would it? It would have been so obvious that it was still very much in the human, that it was still very much not a new Jesus. It was the same old broken body that he had been laid in the tomb in. If God is going to change your life, you're going to have to give him your life. If the resurrection is going to be real in your life, it's only going to come through death to who you are. Laying down your dreams, your visions, your hopes, your future, and giving them to God. Now, for some of you, maybe that looks really hard. And you would say, Brother Martin, honestly, I don't know how, as a 21st century American, I'm not sure how to let go of my love of comfort, my love of self, my love of materialism, my love of, of the good things in life and embrace the cross that Jesus has given me. I don't know how to do that. You can't do it in your own strength. This isn't going to be something you're going to be able to do for yourself. The only way you'll ever experience the glory and beauty of resurrection is if, if the Spirit of God can so fill you and free you 
that it gives you that ability to lay your life down. But one of the ways that he does that is by opening our eyes to a vision of what he wants us to be. As he opens our eyes to a future of resurrection, it gives us the power to let go of the right now. The scripture says this about Jesus, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And if you and I could get a vision, just a glimpse of what God wants your life to look like on the other side of resurrection, it would be so, it would completely change how you viewed that death, that dying out to who you are, dying out to people's opinions of us, to our reputation. The disciples came out of this experience determined themselves to be dead men. They stood before they stood before the Sanhedrin. They stood before kings and Caesars. And they spoke with fearlessness. And here's why. Because everything in their life they had let go of to cling to, to, to lay hold on the hope that was set before them. That's the reason why Paul can say, everything in my life I count it as nothing, as less than nothing for the joy that's before me. And here you and I are today. And we feel like we're drifting and purposeless, purposeless and don't even know how to put one foot in front of the other. But yet we refuse to lay down our lives. Some of you, there are so many issues in your life spiritually that could be traced back to this very root. That the issue is you won't let go. And I want you this morning just to hear, listen, open your ears spiritually and hear the call of Christ. Come, follow me. What does it mean to follow him? He says, if anyone will follow me, he has to take up his cross. Now, the beauty of it, the reason why I can speak these words with hope is because your cross is not Jesus' cross. Jesus is not asking you to die for the sins of the world. He's asking you to take up the reproach and even sometimes embarrassment at the kind of life that following Jesus means so that you can have a life that matters. We've all seen people that when we look at them, sometimes I've been walking down the street and I just shake my head. You know, I've seen people and I'm like, I don't know what motivates someone to walk down the street looking like that. Okay. All of us probably have seen that. We live in Chicago. I've seen some of the, I go downtown and I'm, I'm just like, wow, I never expected to see that walking down the street. And we, we just kind of shake our heads like, that would never be me. And yet, if we were to have a conversation with that person, you know why they've done that? They have made those decisions in their life. They've embraced that identity because they're trying to find some purpose or meaning. And the secret that they've uncovered in that is that they found that with all the ridicule that that brings on, it still brings them more meaning than the emptiness that you might live in. Are you following me? Does that make sense? In other words, they have thrown away their life and they found something. Something that gives them some sense of purpose. The tragedy is that it's no ultimate sense of purpose. There's no ultimate sense of meaning. But for you and I, as we lay down our lives, this is the way Paul puts it. He says that every day our outer man is growing weaker and weaker. But our inner man, he grows stronger by the day. What he's saying is this, that he's seen through the facade that is this world 
of material prosperity and an appearance of happiness, and he's reached through this world to an eternity that's coming. He's laid hold on that hope, and he's living out his life completely oriented towards that hope. And what that meant was, when Paul stood by, stood facing a Caesar who had all the authority and power, he could speak with fearlessness because he recognized that his, hand, his life already was resting in the hand of God. He had already laid that life down. He had no reason to fear death because he'd already died. He had died to himself. He had died to his own visions and plans and, and dreams for the future. This is the Paul that at one point is, is opposing the church. He's persecuting the church. This is the guy that wrote half the New Testament. And before Jesus came and touched him, he is intent on destroying the Christian faith. He's destroying, he's, he's, he's uh, bringing captive and, and throwing into prison and persecuting every Christian he can get his hands on. But when God opens his eyes to the truth on the Damascus road, a flash of light, a, a thundering voice, and Christ speaks to him and says, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And when Paul says, who, who are you? He says, I am Jesus. Later, when it's just a few days later in the story of his conversion, of his transformation, of his salvation, God comes to Ananias, a man that's going to witness to Saul. And he says, Saul, uh, he says, Ananias, I want you to go and talk to Saul. He says, I'm going to show him the things that he will suffer for my sake. Isn't that a strange thing? That's a strange thing for, for, for God to say about what he's going to say to someone to turn them into a Christian, to turn their life around. Saul is on a fast track to promotion. He's a... Um, he's a religious leader in a culture that religious leader meant political leader, meant wealth, meant position, meant pride. And that's Saul's world. And his whole world turns around. He walks away from his university degrees, from his position of power and respect and admiration, from something like 3,000 years of religious history that he's an inheritor of. He walks away from all of that. And still in the day that Saul preaches to, there's a glorious temple that rests, that, that stands in the center of the city of Jerusalem. And that prestige and honor and authority is vested, is, is, is uh, a reality, a part of the identity that Saul had lived with until Jesus came. And then Jesus tells him the things he's going to suffer but I want you to look back on the past and recognize, I think every single one of us here, if we probe deeply enough in our life, you would admit that one of the things that you want most deeply is a life of significance. You don't want to be forgotten. You want your life to matter, to mean something. 30 years later, that temple that was everything to Saul, who became Paul, that temple that meant everything to him, that he had vested his identity in, was a pile of smoking rubble. It was gone. Just a few years later, before the temple's taken down, but, but shortly after the letters that we have from Paul, tradition tells us that Paul stands before Caesar, he makes his case, and he ends up executed. His head rolls. His life is over. He is 
the failed ambassador and missionary for a little ragtag group of rejected agitators in the Roman Empire. A religion, a, a, a religion called the Way that no one much had really heard of. They're hated by everyone, rejected by all. That's the world that Saul chose to be part of. If I were to ask some of you this morning, if I were to ask everyone this morning, do you know what year the temple was brought down, the temple was destroyed? There's probably only a fraction of you that could tell me the date. If I were to ask you to describe something about Judaism, you probably know a little bit from your Old Testament. But the name of Paul and the letters of Paul are read all over the world. God gave him a life of significance because he laid down his own life. And I'm pleading with you this morning, if you're going to live a life of significance, you'll have to let go of the, the things that seem so important right now because you're chasing shadows that won't matter that much in five years, in 10 years, 30 years, 100 years. What do those years matter in the light of eternity? But if you'll embrace the future that God has before you, that future is a resurrected future, is a future that will matter forever and ever and ever. We enter into God's kingdom, into God's story. And he gives us what we were looking for all along, a life of meaning, a life that matters. But it only lays on the other side of a cross. May the Spirit give us eyes to see. May God give us strength to surrender. And may some of you here this morning be willing to finally die so that you can really live.